This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thrombotic disease, including DVT and PE, represent a major public health problem and account for over 350,000 cases and over 100,000 deaths per year in the United States. It's estimated that about 5% of individuals have had a venous thrombosis at some time during their life. It's likely that these statistics underrepresent the prevalence of thrombotic disease since up to half of the patients with DVT are asymptomatic. And we now have some relatively new treatment options in the direct oral anticoagulants. With us to discuss thrombotic disease and its treatment is Dr. Matthew Bartlett, a general internist and specialist in thrombotic disease. He practices in the Division of General Internal Medicine and our Thrombophilia Clinic in Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Daryl. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk about uh, DVT first. Uh, in those with an acute DVT, who should be hospitalized and who can be treated as an outpatient at home? Yeah, that's a really good question and a frequent question that I think comes up uh, all the time in clinic. Um, I think we all recognize that DVT and pulmonary emboli are serious conditions that unfortunately can be fatal and therefore often are treated as medical emergencies. Um, what we've recognized, though, is that the treatments available for uh, venous thrombosis currently are, are very good and often can be administered as an outpatient uh, setting. So uh, we, we have certain considerations that we can make when we decide whether a patient needs to uh, go to the emergency department and potentially get hospitalized versus getting treated as an outpatient. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as a couple logistical considerations and then some medical considerations as well. Uh, in terms of logistics, you want to make sure that the patient is reliable and that they will that they feel comfortable giving themselves the medications and also that they would easily have uh, medical access should they have complications from their treatment or worsening symptoms. In terms of medical considerations, there are certain indications where you, know, you probably should at least observe the patients in the hospital for a short duration. If patients have very severe symptoms, if there's any concern about the risk of bleeding while on anticoagulation, patients with severe liver disease or severe kidney disease or even pregnant patients probably would be best uh, monitored at least for a few days in the hospital. For deep vein thromboses, interestingly, not every DVT needs to be treated with anticoagulants, and I suspect we'll talk a little bit about the calf vein DVTs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in terms of DVTs, particularly the big ones or the iliofemoral DVTs that are way up in the groin, these can really run into trouble quickly. So these probably should be sent to the emergency department and evaluated. In terms of pulmonary emboli, we... Um, have several risk scores that we can use to try to predict the chances of something bad happening in the immediate setting. Uh, here at Mayo, we use the Simplified Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, or PESI score, which essentially has six characteristics that you can look for that would indicate that this patient's going to be a higher risk. So mm -hmm. you consider the patient age, their blood pressure, their heart rate, uh, if they have underlying cardiopulmonary disease, if they have cancer, and if their oxygen saturation is low. 
if they don't have any of those risk factors, then the risk of something bad happening in the first 30 days are actually really low and they can probably be treated as an outpatient. If they have several of those risk factors, on the other hand, they're probably higher risk and probably would be better off being seen in the hospital for a few days. Okay. Now you mentioned calf DVT, and so a, a proximal and distal DVT are kind of two different animals a bit. Yeah, you're right. So it's so it's interesting. So in the thrombophilia world, we try to differentiate between uh, uh, blood clots that occur above and below the knee, and the, the reason for that is that the clots that occur below the knee seem to be a, act a little bit different than the ones above the knee. They're, they tend to cause less trouble. So. Um, they tend to grow at a slower pace or not as frequently as the, as the above knee DVTs. About 15% in two weeks tend to, tend to grow. They also tend to embolize less frequently than the proximal DVTs, and they also tend to cause less post-thrombotic syndrome as well. Because the risk of bad things happening for these blood clots, many have suggested that maybe the treatment and the risk of treatment might actually outweigh the benefit of treatment. And uh, recently, the American College of Physicians updated their guidelines and suggested that in low-risk individuals, they actually can be followed clinically and with serial ultrasounds rather than receive anticoagulation. Uh, the guideline provides us a couple of risk factors that we can consider, including an elevated D-dimer, a large thrombus more than five centimeter in size, if it's really close to the knee veins, if it's unprovoked or associated with cancer or hospitalization, or if the patients had prior DVTs. In those situations, I probably would treat them with a blood thinner, but if a patient has a high risk of bleeding or they don't have those risk factors, we often give the patient the option to monitor them with an ultrasound every week for two weeks. We think that if the clot does not enlarge in, in those two weeks, the chances of something happening is very low and they can be managed without blood thinners. Okay. Well, let's talk about blood thinners. For years, all we had was heparin in hospital and warfarin for outpatient, and then came the low molecular weight heparin. But now we have a few new treatment oral options, uh, the direct oral anticoagulants. So let's talk about the different options we have available for treating thrombotic disease. Yeah, it's been a really exciting world for uh, thrombophilia experts like myself. We've, we, it's kind of been some big game changers that have come to the market over the last couple of years. Um, I like how you're calling them the direct oral anticoagulants. We, we used to call these the new or novel, but I think we're recognizing that that's not going to be the case for much longer. Yeah, you can't call them new for that long. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, we have essentially four new medications available. There are the direct thrombin inhibitor, the bigotran, and then the factor 10A inhibitor, Pixaban, Vivaroxaban, and Adoxaban. Uh, they are a lot more convenient than warfarin. They, their dose is a lot more predictable and does not have to be adjusted as much as warfarin typically would have to. Uh, they don't require as close of laboratory monitoring as warfarin does as well. So patients really prefer this option just out of uh, logistical benefits. From a blood clot treatment perspective, these seem to be uh, very effective blood thinners. They, they seem to work just as well as warfarin, um, and, but they seem to be a little bit safer. So they seem to be associated with less bleeding overall, but particularly intracranial bleeding tends to occur half as uh, often in patients on the direct oral anticoagulants compared to warfarin. So, so they do have some benefits there. Now, when I've heard that statistic, that they are safer in terms of bleeding complications in warfarin, I wonder, is that because the warfarin may get out of range in some patients? Has it been looked at 
when warfarin has been managed well and it's in the therapeutic range, is that still the case? Are they still safer? Is it because warfarin tends to be uh, over-therapeutic at times? Yeah, definitely uh, part of the challenge with warfarin is keeping it within range. And I, I think uh, it would make sense that the more the patient stays within range, that the less the differences between the DOAX and warfarin would be. Um, I, uh, I, I think, you know, the closer we get to perfectly within range, um, you know, that the closer the risks of bleeding will align. I still think the direct oral anticoagulants would still be a little bit safer. Um, unfortunately, in, in reality, though, it's, it's very difficult even for the, the highest experts to keep patients perfectly in range. And I think that's, again, where some of the benefits of the DOAX lie. Okay. The other issue with the uh, newer products is the cost. Absolutely, absolutely. Fortunately, it seems like this is becoming less and less of an issue. I, uh, I used to, um, I used to shrug, shrug every time I uh, patients ask me, uh, you know, the likelihood of this being covered. But but it seems like every year now this is becoming less and less of an issue. But but absolutely a big consideration that we have to think about. And products to reverse the anticoagulant effect. Yeah, so this was a, uh, uh, these have been two very new developments. Uh, f um, two years ago, we got the, the uh, reversal agent for the direct oral, uh, the direct thrombin inhibitor, the Bigatran, uh, which is called Ida Rusisimab, a little complicated name. And then last year, the FDA approved Indexinet, which is the reversal agent for the factor 10A inhibitors, particularly Apixaban and Rivaroxaban. It's that they're they're very exciting options. Uh, it, it, the studies so far suggest that they do a good job in reversing at least the laboratory effect of the blood thinners. I think we still have a lot to learn in terms of their safety and the risk of using them. And unfortunately, they're incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. But I think it's reassuring for patients to know that at least there are reversal agents off out there as sure. well. Sure. Yeah. Well, warfarin has been such a difficult drug to use with interactions with food, with other medications, with exercise. It's just, uh, it's, it's really difficult to keep that drug in therapeutic range. Absolutely. Are there any patients who should not receive the direct oral anticoagulants? I think so. I think so. There are certain situations where we just don't have the experience, and then there are certain situations where there's at least a signal that these might not be the most appropriate option. Um, in pregnant patients and breastfeeding patients, we really haven't studied the role of the direct oral anticoagulants. We probably should avoid it in this, these situations. Um, patients that are on warfarin for other reasons, such as a mechanical heart valve, uh, probably should stay on the warfarin rather than switch over to the direct oral anticoagulants. And probably patients with severe liver and kidney disease, we just don't know the, the role as well of how these work, so we try to avoid these agents in okay. those situations as well. Mm -hmm. Are you an NP or PA looking to fulfill your 2019 CME and pharmacology credit requirements? We have designed our online inpatient medicine for NPs and PAs course just for you. Learn about treatment pathways from admission to discharge in an interactive case-based format. Visit ce.mayo.edu to get started on your credits now. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.
So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of uh, DVT or PE. Um, how long should these people be on treatment? So that's an excellent question. So I, I like to differentiate the treatment into two phases. We have the acute phase where the goal is to prevent the clot from causing immediate trouble. So we want to prevent the clot from getting bigger, from embolizing to the lung or, or causing another complication. That phase usually lasts about three months. After three months, the clot tends to stabilize and uh, it gets more organized and less likely to embolize to the lung or cause other trouble. Once we've completed the three months, we step into the long-term or extended phase of treatment. And, and the big question there is, you know, what are the chances of you developing a second blood clot? And do you need to be on some form of prophylaxis or secondary prophylaxis to prevent that clot from occurring? So I think everyone agrees that, you know, most patients should get three months of anticoagulation regardless of the cause, but it really, it, it, the, 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 the role of extended duration really depends on the chances of getting another blood clot. Let's talk a little bit about uh, long car rides, long plane trips. Are those considered risk factors for the development of a thrombotic condition? Yeah, so traditionally we've really thought about you know, blood clots either being provoked or unprovoked. And, and that's probably a little bit of a, too much of a black and white differentiation. I think there are some risk factors that we know are clearly associated with blood clots major surgery, particularly orthopedic surgery, uh, pregnancy, cesarean sections. And it's when a patient develops a blood clot shortly after that, it's very easy for us to say that, you know, that probably what was what caused the blood clot. And once that risk factor is gone, the chances of them having another blood clot is, is pretty small. The question of prolonged travel, particularly long uh, flights, comes up pretty frequently. And, and there is data to suggest that longer trips is associated with an increased risk of blood clots, but the, the risk is not very large. In fact, for, for a flight over four hours, the chances of a blood clot is about one in 4,600. So mm -hmm. it's a little hard to sometimes attribute the flight alone to the reason that they got the blood clot. There usually is something else that we need to consider as well. Should we be instructing our patients anything to uh, minimize that risk on long flights? I think for most patients, you know, um, moving around is probably a good idea regardless of blood clots or not. So mm -hmm. I, I, I tell patients it's probably a good idea every couple of hours to get up and move your legs. If you can't do that to, due to turbulence or something else, at least, you know, pumping your calf muscles. Sure. We also know that dehydration can also increase the risk of blood clots. So I try to tell patients to stay hydrated as well. How about compressive stockings? Can they can they be a benefit? So that's a really good question. Uh, we, we get that pretty frequently from patients and family members of uh, patients that have had blood clots before, and there seems to be a role of compression stockings in that situation. Uh, so I think it's a very reasonable uh, idea if, if the patients had a prior history of a blood clot or fa a family history of blood clots as well. Okay. Well, I've over the years I have been impressed with how subtle findings you can have that represent a uh, a, a venous thrombosis. So. Um, I'm very aggressive, even if I s slightly suspect it, but what should we do in terms of an evaluation when we consider a venous thrombosis? So the first question you want, really want to consider is what are the chances of this being a, a, a DVT or a pulmonary embolism? And we think about that as the pretest probability. 
Uh, and uh, there are some very helpful pr prediction rules that we can use to determine what the chances are of this being a blood clot. Uh, the one that we typically refer to is the Wells criteria, which there's one specifically for DVT and for PE. And by using that score, you can estimate whether the patient has a very high risk of a thrombus or a very low risk. And the benefit here is that if a patient has a very low risk of a DVT or a PE, you can use a blood test such as a D-dimer to essentially rule out a blood clot, avoiding an unnecessary ultrasound or a CT scan. Certainly, there are some conditions that predispose one for uh, venous thrombosis, um, malignancy being one. Absolutely. When do we start doing a uh, malignancy evaluation for patients with DVTs? That's a very good question. So uh, we, we know that cancer is a big risk factor for VTE. Cancer patients are about four to seven times more likely to get a blood clot than patients without cancer. And unfortunately, we, we know that uh, an unprovoked VTE can essentially be the first sign of cancer in about three to 5% of patients with unprovoked DVTs and PEs. There's been uh, some research recently looking into the role of doing aggressive screening for those patients to pick up cancers early to see if you know, we can uh, improve mortality and quality of life. Those studies have uh, unfortunately not been, um, not, not suggested that uh, CT scans or PET scans have been helpful in that situation. Generally, I consider you know your history and physical exam to be the, the, the most helpful test. Really should try to see if there's any suggestion of any other symptoms to suggest a malignancy. Uh, every patient, regardless of a uh, blood clot or not, should be up to date on their age-related cancer screening. So if they're overdue for their colonoscopy, then this definitely should be a prompt for them to get their colonoscopy. But I think most experts also agree that some routine laboratory work like a CBC, some liver tests, uh, a chemistry panel, maybe a urinalysis and a, and a chest x-ray are reasonable first steps uh, when evaluating an unprovoked uh, DVT or PE. Okay. You've got additional tests that you can do looking for specific uh, thrombophilia diseases, uh, existing states, Factor V Leiden, for example. When, when do we do these? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, anytime we do a test, we really want to make sure that the test is going to influence our management. And um, when we think about the inherited thrombophilias, um, there, we, we usually refer to about five of them. We refer to activated protein C resistance or factor V Leiden, uh, the prothrombin G mutation, and deficiencies in protein C, protein S, or antithrombin. At least for the factor V Leiden and the prothrombin gene mutation, these are very common mutations. And when we screen, you know, the general population, the factor V Leiden gene mutation, we can see up to about five percent of the Caucasian uh, American population. Interestingly, once you've gotten your first blood clot, the presence or absence of a, a heterozygous factor V Leiden or prothrombin gene mutation really doesn't predict the chances of getting another blood clot. So whether you have it or not, my, my recommendations really are going to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, if the patient has a blood clot that clearly is associated with a major temporary reversible risk factor, then the testing for thrombophilias there really hasn't been found helpful as well. So, so generally, testing for underlying thrombophilias is, is not really helpful for most individuals because really it's the history that should guide us whether they should receive long-term therapy or not. Okay. Finally, one more question. Uh, we've been talking about using warfarin, direct anticoagulants, uh, heparin. 
What about aspirin? When can aspirin be used as a preventive measure for uh, thrombotic disease? Yeah, so in patients that are told that they need to be on long-term anticoagulation to prevent a second or a third event, uh, we have a couple of options available. And before the direct oral anticoagulants came into place, there were a couple of studies that looked into the role of using aspirin to prevent blood clots. It looks like aspirin... Uh, prevents blood clots in about 30 to, or it reduces the chance of a second blood clot in about 30 to 40%. So it, a baby aspirin can be helpful in that circumstance. Um, the direct oral anticoagulants and warfarin, however, are found to be a lot more effective. So as, as opposed to aspirin, which reduces it by 30 to 40%, the anticoagulants reduce it by close to 80 to 85, not 90%. So in general, we prefer to use the anticoagulants more than aspirin. Sometimes, pa sometimes patients or uh, physicians uh, like the notion of using aspirin due to the perceived lower risk of bleeding, mm -hmm. but there actually have been some recent studies that have suggested that the lower dose of either rivaroxaban or apixaban are as effective as the standard doses when used after six months of therapy and really have not been shown to have any increased major bleeding risk compared to a baby aspirin or placebo. So, so therefore, if, if we can get them on a reduced dose of the direct oral anticoagulants, that might be as good as the typical anticoagulants, but with no increased risk of bleeding compared to an aspirin or placebo. We've been discussing thrombotic diseases and their treatment with Dr. Matthew Bartlett, an internist and thrombotic disease expert at the Mayo Clinic. Matt, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.